Thank you, Joseph. How sweet it is to be here with you. Uh, how wonderful it was to be invited by Pastor Mike uh, from Peoria, Illinois. And he sent me a note in December asking if I would like to come to Southern California <laughs> to preach. And I said, yes, I would. I would very much like to do that. Um, uh, this has been a very sweet time to be with uh, your church family. Uh, I've grown to, first time I've been here, I've, I've uh, uh, followed Pastor Mike's ministry, though, from a distance, and uh, so it's really sweet to see what God is doing here in this particular church family. I, uh, I am excited to come to Southern California, but more importantly, I'm excited for Compass Bible Church. Uh, I, I'm excited that you have a pastor who loves God, who loves his word, and is, is committed to the expositional preaching of the word. And that means that he has a church that also delights to hear God's word and respond to it. And uh, that thrills my heart, it thrills my heart. I, uh, there's a verse in Amos, Amos 8, 11, in which God says that uh, he, as a result of Israel's rebellion and idolatry and disobedience, he's going to send a famine. But he says it's not going to be a famine of food or it's not going to be a drought of water, but it's going to be something much, much worse. It's a famine of God's word that he's going to withhold his hand from the people so that the people wouldn't want to hear God's word, and there's no one then who's willing to share God's word. And that is the worst kind of judgment. And so uh, I'm encouraged as long as there's a church like Compass Bible Church, God is showing his mercy to us, that, that he's not sending a famine yet, that God's word is still going out from this church and this community, and that really, really encourages my heart. My wife, uh, Kimberly, and I listened to Pastor Mike's sermon uh, regarding Christ's kingdom forecast from Luke 21 yesterday, and uh, my wife, who had to go back to the hotel room because she's having a, a bad a back issue, uh, she just loves, loves, loves Bible prophecy, and uh, she just kept exclaiming all through that message about how encouraged she was by it, and so I just want to let you know, I, I believe uh, what God is doing here, I believe that he is receiving glory through you and through this ministry, and he is going to be continuing at work in you. Well, greetings from Bethany Baptist Church in Peoria, Illinois. I came to Bethany Baptist 25 years ago, and it was the first time I had ever been a Baptist was when I was asked to be the pastor of a Baptist church. Uh, prior to that, I'd been at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as a, on staff as a youth minister. And uh, so I've learned a few things about Baptists over the last 25 years and gathered a few stories. And I want to share you one story uh, about a Baptist. There was a Baptist who loved to sail. And one day he was out in his boat, and he was way, way out at sea when a storm rolled up, caught him off guard. Ultimately, it capsized his vessel. And thankfully, God had mercy, he found his way to shore to an island, but it was a deserted island, just he, and he was the only inhabitant. He thought maybe that he'd be rescued quickly, but that was not the case. He ended up being on this island for 10 years before finally he was able to flag down uh, a rescue ship. And the captain came ashore, oh, he had never seen another person uh, for 10 years, and he hugged him, he was so excited and so thrilled. And then as they're about to leave, he says, but, but I've spent 10 years on this island, Captain. You mind if I just show you a few things before we leave? And so he took him high up on the mountain, showed him the gorgeous view. He took him to his favorite fishing spot. He, he took him to his favorite swimming hole. And then they're about ready to go back onto the vessel to leave. And uh, the captain said, well, well, tell me about those three buildings uh, on the shore over there. He says, oh, I, I built those buildings. 
and uh, see that far building on the right? That's my house. That's where I, I live. It's where I sleep. It's where I cook. It's where I eat. And then uh, see that building on the far left? That's my church. Every Sunday I go there, I pray, I worship God there. And then he turned around and was about ready to leave. And the captain said, wait, wait a minute. What about that, that third building that's in the middle? He said, I don't like to talk about that. That's the church I used to go to. Baptists have a way of, of, of having conflict throughout their church history. I, I don't think they're the only ones who have conflict and, and disagreements and difficulties in relationships, but uh, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, and the theme we're going to discuss today is the theme of forgiveness. How do we stir up love in our own local church family through forgiveness? As we read Colossians 3 together and study it, um, we want to keep in mind that God writes this not just to individual Christians, although it applies individually and personally, but he writes it also to uh, the church, that we would apply it corporately and corp together. And so uh, let's just read Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 15, then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, discuss this passage together. God says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful." Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you give us your word. It's, uh, it's food for our soul. You tell us that we can't live by bread alone, but we, we live on every word that comes from your mouth. And thank you, Father, for the authority of your word. Thank you for its perfection. Thank you for its nourishment. Thank you that you speak to us through it in a living way, in a fresh way. Every time we open up your word, you meet with us and you speak and communicate. And I, I pray that you'd communicate with us here at Compass Bible Church this morning through Colossians 3 on the subject of forgiveness. That you'd encourage us, that you'd convict us, perhaps you'd correct us, and that you'd bring us into the joy of your spirit afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God ties his glory in this world to his church. Particularly, God ties his glory to the manner in which his people love one another in the context of a local church family. Jesus said that the world will know that we're his disciples by the way we love one another. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 says this, but the goal of our instruction, the whole purpose, the, the, the whole direction which we're moving when we give instruction, the goal of our instruction is love for a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. So if a church is weak in love, God will be seen as weak and small by this world. If a church is strong in love, God's greatness is on full display by a world that's very broken. What happens when kids grow up in Christian families where their little ears hear their parents speak gossip and criticism and slander and bitterness against fellow church members or church leaders? Well, here's what happens. Those sweet little children hear that the gospel is not true. 
that God's not really great, and that Jesus does not really offer the power of reconciliation. You see, if, if the gospel doesn't work in Christian homes and in the Christian church, how can we communicate that God is greater than our sin? That God has delivered us from the domain of darkness where there's all brokenness and chaos and has, has delivered us then into the kingdom of his, his own son whom he loves, a kingdom full of light, a, a kingdom full of love and reconciliation. Where will people see God's glory in the midst of God's people if the gospel doesn't cause love to dominate in our assembly together? So a lack of love in the church is a much greater loss than two people who make each other miserable. It's a loss for the whole church of the ability to communicate the greatness of God to a world that doesn't know Him. And so for the sake of God's glory in this world, we're right to care about our relationships with each other, about the community that we have in our own local church. We're right to commit ourselves to, to deepening those personal relationships with one another, to stirring up one another to love and to good deeds. I love what God says in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, and let's consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Then we gather together, we gather for the purpose of singing and praying and listening to God's word together. But also when you come on a Sunday morning to church, you come with a view, Lord, you have someone in my own church family whom you would have me to stir up today. Lord, help me to find that person and stir them up. To stir them up to love and to good works. That's, a, that's a, a, a blessed ministry that I can have in their life. And he goes on to say, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you all are a, a spiritual family together and it's a joy for you to live life together. To stir up love and good deeds uh, to one another and also be stirred up by one another. This reciprocal relationship of encouraging, strengthening is designed by God to be the way his church operates. And we do this, he says, all the more as we say the day drawing near. In other words, there's going to be a day of complete perfection when we're going to be in complete harmony with God and with each other because God's sanctifying work will have been complete. It will be made perfect. We'll be transformed in the image of Jesus. But right now, we have the opportunity to worship God in a specific way. That day is approaching. And so let, let's act now toward each other with a view to that future day so that when we get to that day, we look back and say, oh, I'm so thankful for the way the Spirit of God worked in my heart in our own church family to bring Him glory in this age when, when Satan was at work and when sin was dominating. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that fired up my soul and gave me a fresh vision for that future day. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14 says this, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So Paul's envisioning, envisioning the, the judgment seat of Christ. He's envisioning that as he stands before God to give an account of his life, he's not standing sort of in, in a private closet with Jesus talking to him, but he's standing with this precious church that he established. And he says, on that day, one of the things that I anticipate as a result of seeing how God's worked in you and in me is that you are going to boast of us. He's talking about he and his missionary team that you're going to see that as a result of your encouragement to us, our day is happier. That, that that day of reward is more blessed because of your impact upon us. And you're going to just boast. 
And then we, this missionary team, are going to really boast in you because we had a part also in your happiness and your joy and your reward on that future day. I love that vision of the day of Jesus Christ. I believe that we will stand together with our own local church, each one of us, of course, give an account of our lives to God, but all of us having an interest in one another's lives for the joy and for the happiness of that person as they stand before Christ. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He says, ministers and the people that have been under their care must be parted in this world, how well soever they have been united. If they are not separated before, they must be separated by death. But if it be so, there is one more meeting, meeting that they must have, and that is in the last great day of accounts. They, the members of a local church, will meet together as having a special concern one with another in the great transactions of that day. And although they shall meet the whole world at that time, as to the ministers and the people that have been under their care, they must especially meet and be brought together before the judge as having a special concern one with another in the design and the business of that great day of accounts. For God's glory and the joy of that future day, we commit to loving one another, to stirring one another up to love and to good deeds, to say, I want to be the kind of family member where other people experience greater joy and happiness on that day because I encouraged them, I prayed for them. You know, I'm so thankful for the church that I pastor in Peoria, Illinois, and I, I believe with all my heart that that day will be happier for me because of the prayers of the people, because of the encouragement because of the instruction, sometimes because of the correction or even rebuke that my own church family might give to me on occasion. It's, it's the way that we relate to one another, encourage one another, and help one another move on toward Christ-likeness. To be sure, we as a local church have room to grow in the area of love. We have more abundance from God to receive. We are a people who are ever in the process of progress. That is, until we come to that last day, we are moving forward. The finish line is still in front of us. We're still running a race. We're still fighting a fight. This morning, we open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, and God calls us to stir up one another to love, but in a particular way here, and that's to stir up one another to love through the grace of forgiveness, through forgiving other brothers and sisters who have wounded us or wronged us or hurt us. Without forgiveness, love dies in every relationship. The central idea that we're going to chase through Colossians 3 is that forgiveness enables us to bring glory to God in our local church. And all glory to God is lost when forgiveness is fumbled. And so this is a key core aspect of the worship of our own church family. We want to begin by thinking first of the foundation of forgiveness, the, the ground from which we are called to forgive. And, and that foundation of forgiveness is simply the new life that we have in Jesus. So when we read in the text in, in Colossians chapter 3, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We ask, well, well, who is this command given to? And the answer, it's, it's given to God's people. It's given to the saints who are in this church in Colossae. And so this audience is described in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So you've been raised up to new life in Christ. 
So now seek the things that are above. And then in verses 3 and 4, we also read, for you've died. You've died to that old manner of life, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you're going to appear also with him in glory. You're, gonna, you're going to participate in that glorious day. And so this command for us to forgive is given to a people whose life is Jesus. We no longer are a people who live after our own self. We don't chase after self-glory, self-will, self-direction, self-focus. We say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Our self-life has already died. Our new life is with Christ in, with God in Christ. So as we lean in to forgiveness... Paul is saying we're leaning into this new identity that God has graciously given. And what an identity is. Paul provides here three very special descriptions about who we are in Christ. Notice in verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones. The first description that Paul gives of this new life is that we are chosen ones. I love that. We are a people chosen by God for his blessing before the foundation of the world. We were chosen before any internal transformation began to take place. We were chosen while we were still enemies of God, while we were still rebels against God. So God did not choose us because of our moral character. Oh, there's a really nice gal, and there's a wonderful man, so I want them in my family. No, God chose us freely on the basis of his good pleasure and on the basis of his free grace. So when we have a difficult time forgiving a brother or sister in Christ, we're right to remember that God chose us. He drew us near. He accepted us into his family while we were still enemies, while we were still sinning against him. It was was before we changed, before we repented, that God elected us to be his children, chosen ones. The second description that Paul gives to a person who has a new life in Christ is the word holy, holy. When God calls us holy, God does not mean that we no longer sin. No, uh, we're still living in a world of sin. Our flesh is still active, though it is no longer enslaving us. And so we're right to often confess our sins before the Lord and know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But when God says we're holy, he says, I'm setting you apart for my pleasure. I'm setting you apart to be worshipers. I'm setting you apart to represent me in this world. And I'm setting apart individually, but I'm also setting apart as a group, as a church. God God set us apart to be instruments of worship together as a people. This means that the way that we live and relate to one another has one goal, and that's the applause of Jesus' name. That the reason why we gather together on a Sunday, the reason why we connect to one another in small groups and, 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 and deepen in community with one another is so that God would be praised. This also means that God gives us every resource we need to be holy people, to be set apart, to be instruments of worship. God always supplies what he commands. No child of God can say, God, what you ask of me is beyond my abilities because God answers back, my grace is sufficient. My power is perfected in your weakness. Trust, trust in me. The third description that Paul gives to a person who has new life in Christ is beloved, or the New International Version says, dearly loved. I love that. If you are in Christ, do you know that you are dearly loved by God? 
that you are so precious to his heart. We are beloved sons and daughters, and his affection for us, it is infinite, it is unending, and it is unbreakable. It is amazing to be loved, dearly loved by God. So we never forgive one another in the family out of fear that if we don't, we're going to get kicked out of God's family. We're dearly loved. When we forgive, we forgive out of the reserve of God's love for us. That our love tank is never empty when we're in Christ. That God sheds his love abroad in our hearts so that then we are able to love one another because we've been loved by God. We draw from the love that God showers upon us daily to have the love that forgives in our, uh, in our practical lives. Now, our new identity motivates and empowers this commitment to, that we have to one another and to God to forgive. Uh, let me use a very uh, feeble human example to share how I think this works in the heart of God. I have uh, three sons. Two of them are married. And the oldest one that's married has uh, a baby boy, so a six-month-old uh, boy. And I'll tell you, I, I love my sons. I love my <laughs> daughters, my new daughters. And I love this precious grandson uh, with, a, with a, a, a daddy's heart. And uh, they are often on my mind. They're often in my prayers. Now, I recognize that my love for them, it's not infinite. It's not all-powerful. It's not, it's, it's not uh, like God's in that sense of, of its absolute nature. But it is like God's in the sense that it comes from him. And most days I pray for my sons that they would not only love their wives and their child and love God and love the church, but I also pray that they would love one another as brothers. Now, I realize that this is a little difficult now that they're so geographically far apart and they're all living very busy lives. So I have a, a son in Texas who's a dentist with the Air Force. I have a, a son in New Jersey who's a pilot for the Air Force. Today he's in Germany. And I have a son in Missouri who's a student at Truman State College. And when I talk to them on the phone, one of the things I invariably ask them in my conversation is, hey, have you called your brother lately? Because this dad's heart cares, not just that I have a good relationship with him, one-on-one, -on -one, but this dad's heart really cares that they really have a great relationship with each other. Now imagine what would happen if one of my sons was hurt by another son, and that hurt son said, I'm hurt so bad, I don't want to have anything to do with my brother ever again. I might come to the family, I might see him across the room, but I'm going to speak to him. I'm done. I am done, done. And that happens in human families. What, what would happen to this, to this family that I enjoy and that I treasure? Well, a number of things. First, it would grieve my heart immeasurably. It would diminish me. Secondly, it wouldn't just affect them, but it, it would destroy a present-day community that's very valuable and treasured. It, it would affect relationships far beyond just these two and finally, it would not just affect this present time, but it would affect generations to come. What sorrow and destruction that enduring bitterness brings to a family. And I would hope that my sons would connect the bitterness that they might have toward a brother as a result of a wrong suffered to the grief that they would bring their dad, to the pain that they would afflict upon other relationships in the family, 
and to the negative impact it would have upon future generations. Some, gener some, of, some of those folks who aren't even born yet. Again, it is true that a good dad's love doesn't hold nearly the value of God's love for us. God's love is unparalleled. It is infinite and eternal. But I use this very weak human illustration to paint a picture of what I believe is God's heart when he looks across his family. He says, you are my chosen ones. You are holy. You're devoted and set apart for the worship and praise of my name. And you are dearly, dearly, dearly loved. So forgive each other. For the sake of my name and for the sake of all that's good now and into eternity, forgive each other. And so if you have this new identity in Jesus Christ, this command rests upon you. There are no exceptions. And I love that God personally cares for the condition of the relationships in his own local church. He personally pursues peace in his church. By the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ presses forgiveness into our lives. He, he won't let us go. Jesus never looks at his church and sees anger and resentment and detachment and alienation and shrugs his soul. Well, what can you do? No, you're, you're going to go through a series in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And in that passage, it talks about Jesus walking through the midst of a church. And he's making observations personally about the present day experience of that local church. And he gives commendations as well as corrections in the midst of that. And, and so we want to imagine, because this is what Jesus does here at Cumberland Bible Church. He is walking in the midst and he's making observations. And he sees what's happening in relationship to forgiveness and to bitterness and to resentments that might be taking place in this, onus, in this very precious assembly. And he cares about it. He cares so, so very much. Let me tell you a story that's very personal to me that uh, brought home how much God cares for this heart and its forgiveness. About 15 years ago, there was uh, a fellow Christian who wounded me in a way that really hurt, really hurt. Uh, and their sin against me, I, I felt such pain, but I also felt like this rise up, oh, how could they do that to me? So, you know, the first fleshly reaction is to detach. And so I detached from that person. And I went home that night deciding I'm going to stay detached from that person. And you know what? Jesus followed me home. <laughs> and Jesus said, Rich, you need to forgive this person. And you know what I said? I said, not now. I'm not going to do that right now. I don't want to. The hurt's still too strong. I'm not willing. And all through the night, God was continued to communicate very personally. I laid my head on the pillow that night, and the last thing before I drifted into unconsciousness was God bringing a verse from Ephesians 4, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. And you know what I said? I said, no, I'm not going to forgive. I want to stay detached. I don't want this relationship healed, at least not right now. So I woke up in the morning, first thought that God brought to my head, Rich, you need to forgive this person. And again, I was resistant. I, no, I don't want to. And I was starting to soften a little, maybe in a week from now, you know, maybe I'll talk to him again, but not right now. And that morning, as a pastor, I had a six o'clock in the morning Bible study breakfast with a businessman in our community that, that uh, we'd had weekly. And um, 
I was driving, it was a cold winter day, I was driving to the breakfast, you know, recognize I'm going to teach this man how to live a godly life. And uh, God is saying, Rich, you need to forgive this person. No, I'm not going to do that. And I, I walk into the restaurant, you know, to, with my Bible in hand to, to open up the Word with, with this friend. And I'll tell you, this friend didn't even say good morning to me. This friend says, right away, says, Pastor, I have a question for you. That's the first words out of his mouth. Oh, you know, open up the Word. Let me hear your question. He says, how do you forgive someone who hurts you? <laughs> And you just don't want to forgive them. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like the big Holy Spirit sledgehammer, bam. <laughs> and of course, I, I said, what'd you say? And he asked the question, how do you forgive someone when you don't want to forgive them? And of course, I opened, well, let's talk about this. <laughs> and I opened the Bible and started sharing. And all the while as I was sharing the Word of God, it was living, it was powerful, it was active and rolled. And by the end of that conversation, I was just broken. And after that, that time with that man and the Word, I went home and I, I immediately called the person and there was a joyful reconciliation. I thought, why, why was this so hard? And my heart was finally free from that stone. I had a heart of flesh again where I had a heart of stone that was taking over this, this in Christ, blood-bought person. <laughs> Do you think God personally cares for the unity of his church? Absolutely. The foundation for forgiveness is our new life in Christ. But what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean? Let's trace that through. Again, look at verse 13. He says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And here's the definition that, that I've drawn from, from Scripture of what, definition, what uh, forgiveness means. Forgiveness means that we leave justice in God's hands and we do not hold the wrongdoer personally accountable to make his or her sin right with us. Forgiveness releases them from the guilt of their sin and seeks to repair the separation that their sin caused. So we no longer say things like, I'll never forget what that person did to me. We never say things like, that person's dead to me. We never say, I hope he or she gets what he or she deserves. We never say, hey, have a good life. It's the last time I'm going to talk with you. Forgiveness means that we move past our resentments. We keep an open heart of love and joy and peace, a heart of reconciliation, we realize that anything else is a defiance against the God who saved us and chose us and sanctifies us and dearly loves us. Now, a definition, it's helpful, the one that's set before you, but it doesn't communicate nearly as well as an example. And so the Apostle Paul, he doesn't give us a definition here, he gives us an example. What does he say? He says, forgive how? As the Lord Jesus has forgiven you. If we really want to know what it means for us to forgive a brother or sister, then we look to Jesus, and we look to the forgiveness that he's offered to us. He, he came to this world to be our Savior. He died upon the cross to secure a cleansing of our sins, and to those of us who have repented of our sin and believed in him, we now have, have this complete washing and now he is our example. He's our model of what it means to forgive. That's why Paul says, forgive just as Jesus forgave you. 
There are four words that describe Jesus' forgiveness given to us that I want to think through with you this morning. The first word is costly. Costly. Forgiveness is free to the one who receives it. It's free to us from God. But Jesus suffered infinitely in order to purchase it. He suffered not for his own sins, but for our sins. And forgiveness always requires a cost to the one who is giving it. Forgiveness is free to the one who receives it, but it's extremely pricey to the one who gives it. To offer forgiveness is to freely pay what the offender owes as the result of their sin against us. Our forgiveness doesn't mean that God releases them from the penalty due his law. So it doesn't mean just that justice is not any longer in the hands of God. It, it remains there. But our forgiveness means that we release that person from the penalty due to us. It also means that we sincerely pray that they will be released from the penalty that is required of them as they broke God's law. Remember that Jesus prayed for his tormentors, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and then the first martyr, Stephen, even as, as stones are raining down upon him, he prayed, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. He still had a heart of compassion, a, a heart for their salvation. The cost of forgiveness is often unimaginably great. It is the cost that caused C.S. Lewis to write, forgiveness is beautiful until you have something to forgive. Isn't that so? Forgiveness is such a beautiful idea until this wound, this hurt, this pain, this sin, this wrong comes screaming into our lives. And then it seems like it doesn't seem so beautiful now. Our flesh wants to scream out in painful defiance. The cost is too great. It's right to remain separated as a result of, of their sin. God says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Jesus suffering on the cross is a demonstration of his willing to endure the ultimate pain so that we can be free, free from shame and free from condemnation so that we can be clean and forgiven. Forgiveness is costly, but forgiveness is also complete. Jesus forgives not in part, but the whole. Every sin, every part of our sin, it's canceled. The whole entire record of our debt has been canceled because Jesus took the whole book of everything, past, present, future, that we'd ever done that deserved punishment by God, and he nailed it to the cross, and we bear it no more. That's amazing. It's complete. God will never even whisper our sin's guilt to us again. He doesn't allow even an inch of, of distance to separate us in, in, in the offer of fellowship. It's complete. Partial forgiveness is not forgiveness. Forgiveness never releases someone for most of the offenses that they've committed, but holds on to a few particularly painful abuses. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record, no record of wrong suffered. The father of the prodigal son was horribly abused by his selfish, sinful, willful son. And yet, when he saw him come from a distance, he, he didn't wait to hear the son's confession. He ran out immediately, and he threw his arms around this wayward child, and, and he welcomed him back 
not saying, okay, but let's talk about this and that and the other. He just said, my heart is open towards you. Such is the completeness of forgiveness. All sin is completely devoured by the blood of Jesus. Not one part of our sin escapes the blood's cleansing power. Not one. Jesus looks at us as people who are completely, completely and utterly clean. He removes us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Such is the completeness. And God says, forgive one another even as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And then the third word, it's costly, it's complete, but it's also continual. It's continual. Jesus doesn't forgive and then afterwards change his mind and accuse us. One has said that God throws our sins into the depths of the sea and he plants a sign that says no fishing. Don't ever go back there because they're gone. And in our flesh, we are prone to take back our commitment to forgive. We say, and we mean it when we say, okay, I forgive you. That's genuine, that's authentic. We, we feel that in our soul. But we don't realize that giving forgiveness does not always release us from the pain that that sin inflicts upon our heart. I wish forgiveness were that easy, that the moment we said, I forgive you, we wouldn't feel any more pain of the, the wound of that sin against us. Often the pain the wrongdoer's offense created persists and even may deepen over time after we've forgiven. And when the pain of the offender's sin washes over us the next morning or the next week or maybe even years after, we're tempted to retreat from our commitment to forgive. We're tempted to take up that offense once again, to harden our heart as a result of it. By God's grace, we renew our commitment that we originally made to forgive completely, wholly, surely. Forgiveness is a commitment of our future selves to daily release the offender from the guilt and separation that his or her sins deserve. And it's a commitment from this day forward on into eternity. And depending upon how hurtful the offense, forgiveness may require that we release that offender over and over and over for the rest of our lives. God enables us to do that. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And finally, the last word that I want to use to describe Jesus' forgiveness of us is it's compassionate. In other words, Jesus' forgiveness is always warm-hearted. It's a forgiveness that's never served cold. It's the kind of forgiveness that longs for a restored relationship. Now, a restored relationship is not always possible. Because the other person's heart may be hardened. The other person may really be resistant. The other person may continue to, to even hate us. But God says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You're the one that, that we are the ones that need to keep an open heart for restoration and reconciliation. Someone protests, but trust takes time to be restored. And I would respond, yes, yes, trust does take time to be restored, but love does not. Love can be restored in a moment. And that's how God offers his love. He never withholds his love from us even after we've sinned grievously against us, against him. Jesus' forgiveness is born out of a heart of genuine love. It's not born out of obligation. So we think of that story that Jesus told of, of this prodigal son and this father who went way beyond accepting him, his son home. He doesn't just come out and say, okay, son, you're back. I'll provide for you. I'll have a room for you. You can go over there. Remember, that's what David did with Absalom. He says, okay, you can come back home, but don't get too close right now. And that's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness is, is like the heart of that father, and I believe that's a picture of God toward us. And the heart of that father says, 
son. He embraces him with such joy and such enthusiasm. He says, bring out the best robe, put on the rings, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a celebration. This son of mine was lost and now he's home. That's the heart of the father. And his heart was already prepared, already full of forgiveness prior to his seeing that son. It was compassionate. So in verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the joy of the Lord be our strength. God loves cheerful forgiver, forgivers. So now what's the motivation? The motivation of our forgiveness. Why? Again, our flesh, why should I do this? I don't want to do it. Why do I have to? And the, there are a lot of motivations we could name, but the motivation that I believe Paul parks on here is the glory of God, the God who forgave us is in view. So why should we forgive the person who hurt us and sinned against us, who wronged us? We could say, well, a lack of forgiveness will create misery in our own soul. That's true. A lack of forgiveness will corrupt other relationships in the church. That's true. That's why Paul was, was after Yodia and Syntyche in the church of Philippi because their, their strife was going to bleed out into other relationships in the church. We could say a lack of forgiveness will interrupt our own fellowship with God. That's absolutely true. We can say a lack of forgiveness will keep us from experiencing the transformation of the Holy Spirit and creating Christ-likeness in our life. That's absolutely true. But here's what I believe Paul parks on as the, the ultimate motivation forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness will rob God of his glory in the church. And that's why we exist. That's why y'all are a church. That's why we, why we have been blood-bought into God's family. The gift of forgiveness will bring much glory to God in his church. He says in Colossians chapter 3, 17, look at that. And so whatever you do, he's talked about bearing with one another. He's talked about forgiving one another. He's talked uh, about putting on love. He's talked about letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, letting the word of Christ dwell in you. And he says, so whatever you do, whether it's forgiving or bearing with or, or, or listening to God's word, whether it's with kindness or humility, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's all about the name of the Lord Jesus. It's also that Jesus Christ would be lifted up and exalted in our midst. God's word urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the God who loves us and has delivered us from condemnation into eternal life. And walking worthy of God means that we're willing to love one another even, even when we are hurt by one another. I love these two passage scripture first Ephesians chapter 4 I therefore a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy so we've been gifted and blessed by God's grace so much so let's walk in a manner worthy of this calling that we've been chosen out of darkness and into light to which you've been called what does that mean it means that we walk with all humility and gentleness with patience it means that we're bearing with one another in love and that we're eager we're, we're making every effort to maintain unity in God's family and then in Philippians chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I might hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. He says, God cares about whether you're, you're one as a family, whether you have community, genuine, authentic relationships, and in community with one another. With one mind, you're striving side by side, not separately. One group's striving over here, another group's striving over there, but together, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, for the glory of God in his church. God will be glorified by a church that resolves to push back against natural urges to withdraw when others sin against us. To resent one another as a result of hurtful words or to grow bitter against one another as a result of habitual neglect. Spirit-filled believers, we have better options available to us than resentment. We have the option to be filled with God's love for one another and bring testimony to this world that the gospel really, really is true and powerful. Christians walk worthy of God when they are walking in love with other brothers and sisters. And our ability to glorify God is tied directly to our willingness to forgive our brother and sister after they've wronged us, after they've sinned against us. No one who holds on to a grudge or resists reconciliation with a brother or sister is able to give witness to the world that Jesus is glorious. We will make Jesus appear small and insignificant when we refuse to forgive one another. On the contrary, when we do forgive and we have this community that the world doesn't know how to have, it doesn't have the power to be able to have this kind of community with such diversity, when we're living close in proximity to one another's lives and we sin against each other and yet there's, there's unity, there's this oneness, there, there's this reconciliation, there's this wholeness. He says, when you forgive and live in that kind of community with one another, you advance the name of Jesus just through your, through your life. And then your words, your proclamation are infused with power. And above all, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, we have one more issue to cover, and, and that's the resource of forgiveness. How can I do it? It's so hard. It's so difficult. How can I forgive someone who I really don't want to forgive, who hurt me really badly, who wronged me in a way that I, I didn't anticipate, didn't expect? I, I, I don't know if I can forgive. The truth is, I, I don't know the depth of the pains that you've suffered. And I know some of you have suffered way, way, way more by sins against you than I have in my life. I've experienced some, but I know some people that I've talked to have suffered so deeply by, by, by sins that are so grave, so difficult. I don't understand, but I know one who does, and that's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who commands us to forgive. Think for a moment about having a conversation with Jesus about this issue of uh, finding it difficult to forgive. You begin by saying, Jesus, I'm not sure you understand. They hurt me more than, than I could have possibly ever imagined. I, I can't forgive them. And, and Jesus, he, he just holds out his arms and you see, uh, see the nail prints in his hands, the scars. And he says, I understand. I understand. I understand how hard, I understand the cost. And this is what I've done for you. I have borne the eternal weight of your sin so that you can be free. You say, but Jesus, it's not safe for me to forgive. I need to protect myself. And Jesus says, but I'm your savior and I'm your shepherd. And even if you would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil. 
for I'm with you. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. And here's, here's, how, here's how strongly I'll protect you. Imagine yourself sitting at a table eating dinner and your enemy sits right down next to you. He says, I'll set the table for you in the presence of your enemies and you'll be able to enjoy a meal. That's how safe you are with me present. And here's another thing. You're wondering whether forgiveness is really going to bring a lot of, a, a load of more pain and more difficulty. Here's my promise to you. Surely, it's 100% true, 100% certain, surely goodness and mercy will follow you every day that you live if you follow me. Trust me. Trust me in that. You say, but Jesus, if I forgive him, am I just not letting them get by with a wrong? I feel that justice demands that I not forgive them. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Indeed, the sin committed against you may be great, but refusing to forgive is a greater wrong. In injuring you, that person sinned against man, but in not forgiving that person, you are sinning against God. Okay. Okay, but I don't know if I have the strength to forgive that person. I've tried before, and it seems impossible. Behold, I'm with you always. I will never, ever leave you. I will never forsake you. I will strengthen you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You can do all th things through me who strengthens you. I will give you the power of my spirit so that the spirit will produce his fruit in your life of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and gentleness and kindness and self-control. See, here's the truth. Forgiveness is an act that requires the supernatural power of God's grace. But that's the beauty of it. We very normal, natural people get to experience that kind of power, the power to forgive. So I want to close with a couple application questions. First, the most important question of the day, have you been forgiven by God? Have you been forgiven by God? If, if you have not yet come to Christ Jesus with your sins and found that he is a sufficient fountain to cleanse you of all your sin. None of this really is going to be helpful to you because, because it's only in his forgiveness that you have the power and the motivation to forgive another person. And the most basic need of our life is that we have sinned in a way that we can hardly imagine how wicked our sins have been against God. And we will stand before him condemned forever and ever, separated by him forever and ever, punished under our, the weight of our sin forever and ever if those sins are not removed from us, if we don't have a clean heart. And so I don't ask you whether you come to church. I know you do on a Sunday morning. I don't ask you whether you read your Bible. I don't ask you whether you pray. I'm, I'm asking, have you been forgiven? Have you personally come to God and said, God, my sins are immeasurably, infinitely wicked and I can't save myself. I can't go to church often enough. I can't try to, to make amends for the things I've done in the past. Uh, there's nothing I can do, nothing in my hands I bring except my sin. And I'm just coming to you, pleading you for your mercy. And I know you sent your son, Jesus, to do just the thing I'm asking you to do. So I'd ask you today, won't you cry out to God and say, God, please forgive me. By the power and blood of, and, of Jesus Christ, would you forgive me? Secondly, I want to ask you, who is God calling you to forgive today? And our flesh 
wants to create a list, maybe a list of 10, and we want to say, well, let me begin here on number 10. And what I'm suggesting is, no, 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 begin with number one, the person that's the hardest to forgive. The place to begin is with the person whom you resist the most to forgive. That's where the gospel power of supernatural uh, enablement will be discovered. When a city is under siege and there's a break in the wall, where do the soldiers run? They don't run to the part of the wall that's, that's weakening. They run to the part where there's already been a breach. And I just want to encourage you, run to that part of your life where there's a, a person that has breached that wall and, and resentment and bitterness is starting to seep into your soul to poison you. And run there and say, I'm going to cover that breach by the power of this Holy Spirit, by the gospel today, today. Third question, is there someone you've sinned against that you need to ask to forgive, for forgiveness? Have you wronged another person? Perhaps you felt justified because they hurt you first. But we want to begin with humility. We want to put on, it says, the clothes of gentleness and humility. And then let us watch God work. Watch God work in our own lives, giving us a heart of flesh where there used to be a heart of stain, stone. And let's, God, let's watch God work in our own church family, producing a sweet, sweet spirit. And I trust there already is here, but I know de the devil's after you. And I know he wants to disrupt this precious church family and say, for the glory of God and by the grace of God, let me be one who stands in the gap to strengthen this church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the message of the gospel. I thank you for the forgiveness that's offered us in Christ. I pray, O oh, Father, that you'd apply this word to my own heart and then to each one of our hearts. Father, for the glory of your name, we pray it would be so. Help us to be ever watchful for any little root of bitterness that would work its way in our own heart or in this precious church family. And let us apply grace consistently day by day. Lord, we want to be a people who, who give applause, who give praise to you. You are worthy. You are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.